Speaking of the early days, I, I'm so excited about the book of Galatians. I, I've preached through 16 books as a senior pastor uh, since I started the senior pastor almost a decade and a half ago. And one of the first books I ever did was the book of Galatians. And so you might be wondering why you're doing it again. Well, when I decided a year ago that I wanted to journey through Galatians with us as a church, I went and looked at my original notes from the 90s as well as what I did in my first church back then. And I got to tell you, it was so incredibly pathetic, it's not funny. I mean, I'm glad I was in a grace-based church because I, I did six sermons and thought I really, you know, hit it out of the park for the book of Galatians. Six sermons out of six different chapters in Galatians, and it just barely, barely scratched the surface. It just wasn't all that great. And so I actually put those notes aside, I haven't even looked at them, and I'm just rebooting the whole process. I've spent the last few months doing doing more in-depth study of Galatians. And one of the first things I decided we were going to do, and some of you are going to like this, is I said, we're going to slow down and we're going to spend some time in this book. In the original Greek manuscript that Galatians was written, and we have copies of it from very early on after the time of Christ, it's interesting. They had, like we do today, paragraph breaks back then. So the flow of the thought was broken up into different paragraph breaks. There's 25 different paragraph breaks or thought breaks in Galatians. And so the thought that hit me, and I'm not a rocket scientist, this just seems to make sense, is why don't we just honor the original paragraph breaks? And why don't we spend 25 messages in Galatians? Sometimes as today, it'll be five verses. Sometimes it's 10. Sometimes it's only one verse that we're going to spend our whole time in. But let's slow down and spend some time in God's word. It won't feel as laborious as it might sound because we're going to break it up into kind of four different mini series. Uh, we're going to do six weeks now before I head off for a mission trip in late May. And then when I come back, we'll spend five weeks, June into July. And then I'm taking some few weeks off in the summer. And then we'll come back in August and September and do the third leg. And then in the fall, the fourth leg. So it'll feel broken up a little bit, but we're going to follow the thought pattern of Paul as God writes through Paul. And all I can tell you is that this is extremely relevant stuff. The, what the original audience was wrestling with back then, with the power and the purpose of the gospel in everyday life, is the same thing you and I wrestle with today. So I think you're going to find this just, it could be very life-changing for you in your walk with God. So let's pray, Cactus and Venue, let's pray as well, and then we'll dive right in. Father, I thank you for your holy word that really truly does change our lives when we understand it and live it out. So that's my simple prayer, that over the next 30 minutes now, we would understand rightly these opening verses of Galatians and then have the courage to apply these things diligently and with integrity to our lives. So bless this time, we pray in Christ's name. <clears throat> Amen. So let me ask you the lead-in question to our study in the book of Galatians, and it's the most important question we could ask in this series to set it up, and it's a question you probably were not expecting, and it's this, what is your gospel? If you and I were having a cup of coffee this morning, and I sat down with you, and over a cup of coffee said, what is your gospel, uh, what would you answer? Because you see, we all have one, we do. 
If you define a gospel as the Bible does, as that which is your ultimate hope, that which is your primary pathway in life, that which you bank on and lean on the most in life, that which you put your deepest trust in, in short, your gospel is where you find your own personal salvation, then certainly we all have one. Every human being has a gospel. So what's yours? You see, for some of us here today, if you and I are having a cup of coffee, you might be honest and say, well, uh, my gospel is a gospel of self. But we live in a day and age of self-help, self-dependence. I'm a self-focused man. I've learned to to do a lot of self-help over the years. And so for some, many today, the gospel for them really is themselves. Their ultimate hope, their deepest trust is in themselves. We all know people like this. Uh, The late Whitney Houston uh, sang in one of her most famous songs these words. She said, learning to love yourself is the greatest love of all. I don't happen to agree with that. I think that is indicative, however, of the gospel of self, and it's very prevalent today. For some of you, you'd say, well, it's not myself. No, the gospel that I'm into is the gospel of society, government, and education all lumped together. In other words, for many in our culture today, their ultimate hope and trust, think about it, is in the world around them. They put their trust in American culture. So it goes like this, get a good education, secure a nice paying job, become involved in the community, fight for increased legislation, make a better society, therein lies our hope. It's the gospel of our current culture. Banking on society, government, and education the most in order to find the hope and security that we're all looking for. What's your gospel? Be honest with yourself. Because you see, still for others, they might say when they're honest with themselves, well, my gospel is my family or my spouse or maybe some other meaningful relationship. And this one gets tricky Because obviously we all depend and lean on our family and spouse for support in life. But for some, it goes much further than this. Their spouse and family, and we all know people like this, is everything. It's their only hope for satisfaction and and, and joy in life. I've told you guys before that I'm kind of a redneck at heart and I love country music. And I've been in country music for about 20 years now. And Brooks and Dunn are one of the most popular country music fans, especially where I come from. And a few years back in the 90s, they sang a very popular song whose chorus went like this. I saw the light. I've been baptized by the fire in your touch and the flame in your eyes. I've been born to love again. I'm a brand new man. And what's so very interesting about this song is that it's not written to God. You would think with those explicitly religious words that it would be written to God, but it's not. It's written to and about a woman. And yet think of those words. I saw the light. I've been baptized. Fire, flame. I've been born again. This is somebody whose gospel is another person. Their ultimate hope and peace is going to be found in another, and that becomes their gospel. And the list could go on and on, folks. For some, their gospel is things, just more acquisition. For others, it's their job or vocation. For still others, it's leisure and adventure. Tim Keller, the famous pastor in Manhattan, uh, calls these counterfeit gods, The fact that our culture today hasn't set up wooden statues as idols as Israel did, but that doesn't mean that we don't have our own set of idols. 
We have lots of counterfeit gods out there. And the point is, is that whenever you put your ultimate hope and trust in them, this becomes your gospel. So what's yours? It's a really good question to ask. Because you see, as we're each pondering the answer to this question, along comes the New Testament book of Galatians, and its primary argument, now don't miss this, is to choose God's gospel for your life. The gospel that comes to us and is spelled out in the person of Jesus. And just to make sure that we don't think that this gospel that God puts before us is simply some religious Sunday-only kind of thing that you recognize in church once a week through singing a few songs, hearing a good sermon, and giving a few bucks, the book of Galatians is going to posture this gospel in light of all of life, making sure that we know that this is a gospel for everyday life, not just a once-a-week observance. And so let's read the opening verses together, and you'll begin to see what I mean. Uh, if you brought a Bible, I want you to open up to Galatians chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. We're going to park there for the rest of our time this morning. If you didn't bring a Bible, as always, we'll put it up here on the screen, as well as it's on your outline right on the front page there. So we can all follow along as I read this. Paul, an apostle, not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead and all the brothers who are with me to the churches of Galatia. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Now, what's very interesting about these opening words of Galatians is that God tells us three critical things about this gospel that he puts before us, three crucial aspects, if you will, of the gospel that are important for applying it and understanding it in our lives. And those three aspects, I'll give you right up front, they're on your outline, are the provision of this gospel, the power of this gospel, and the purpose of this gospel. Uh, again, provision, power, and purpose. And folks, when you think about it, what's most fascinating about this is that every other gospel that competes with the gospel today also contains a provision, a power, and a purpose. And so we can compare and, in a sense, contrast it to what's going on in the world around us. So, for instance, if you're into the gospel of self today, then obviously you've already declared that the provision of your gospel is yourself. The power is your own internal reserves and energy. And the purpose is obviously to trust and depend solely on yourself. Again, a very popular mantra today. Or say, for instance, you're into society, government, and education as your ultimate hope. The, the provision is obviously educational institutions, government agencies, and societal engineering. The power is found in harnessing certain resources like knowledge, money, and legislation. And the purpose then is obviously to build a society that provides safety and security for all. Again, it's the gospel that our world is into. And so when you look very closely, every gospel has these three elements, provision, power, and purpose, and along comes Galatians. And in the opening verses, it's going to lay out for us the provision, power, and purpose of God's gospel in Jesus. 
So in our time remaining this morning, let's briefly explore these and see if they make sense for our lives, especially when we match them up against the other options we have today. So first, we have the provision of God's gospel, and you guessed it, it's the person of Jesus Christ. It's the person of Jesus Christ. Look again at verse 1, how all this begins. It says, Paul, an apostle, not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father. And then in verse 3, it mentions Jesus again. And this time, very interesting, it calls him the Lord. We'll get to that in a minute. It calls him the Lord. So don't miss what's going on here in these opening words. When Paul declares that he is an apostle, which simply means somebody who is sent and now has authority to speak on behalf of the sender, in doing this, Paul makes it very clear that his apostolic authority to speak about this gospel does not come from man, nor from any men, but from Jesus the Son and God the Father. And what most Bible experts point out at this point is that Paul is obviously making it clear here that Jesus is not a mere man. He says his authority doesn't come from man, but from Jesus. So right from the start, Paul makes it clear that Jesus is more on the divine side of things than anything else. And then he backs this up. I said we'd get to this a second ago in verse 3 when he calls him the Lord. We all know the Lord there is a catchphrase for somebody who is omnipotent, powerful, sovereign. It's usually only applied to God. So when it's applied to Jesus here, combined with the fact that he's not from any man or men, Paul is telling us that the provision of the gospel, both its source as well as its mediation in our lives, is Jesus, who's not a man, but who is and comes from God. And so latch on to this, guys. Before we go any further this morning, simply note at this point that the provision of God's gospel is not yourself. That's really important to know. It just blows away the gospel, the self right right there in verse 1. Not from men, nor by man. So there's no room there for the gospel of self. The gospel that God wants you to latch on to is not the world around you whether it be government that provides for you, society that you're a part of, or even the education that you have. And it's not your things, your job, your friendships, your family, as good as all these things are. No, don't miss this. The single and only provision for God's ultimate hope for you is Jesus Christ, the Lord, Jesus Christ. He's the centerpiece of the gospel. He's the provision. And so I like how Michael Horton, a professor of theology at Westminster Seminary in California, says it. Look up here on the screen. He says, and I quote, The gospel is not good instruction, not a good idea, and not good advice. The gospel is the announcement of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. This is our starting point. Jesus is God's provision. Nothing more, nothing else, and nothing less. He's God's gospel. And obviously the question that comes up at this point is, why Jesus, right? I mean, some of you don't ask that question because you've been around the church block so many times, you, you know the answer. But, but if you and I were to be so bold as to suggest this week to our friends, neighbors, coworkers, maybe family members that don't know the Lord, that Jesus Christ is the only provision of the most powerful gospel to ever hit humankind, the obvious question people would ask is, why Jesus? 
Why are Christians so exclusive when it comes to Jesus? And this brings us to the second key aspect of God's gospel, and it's very positive and very life-giving, and that is that the power of the gospel is found in Jesus' resurrection. Some of you didn't see this coming, but it's true. The power of the gospel is Jesus' resurrection. And so isn't it interesting that in verse 1, after establishing that Jesus is the only provision of this gospel, that God the Father says, and I quote, God the Father raised him, Jesus, from the dead. Do you see that in verse 1? He raised him from the dead. And i got to ask you, why do you think Paul the Apostle and God writing through him included this here? I mean, some of you don't ask questions like that, but you should. I mean, the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, have already made it very clear that Jesus rose from the dead. It's like the main point of the four Gospels. The book of Acts will talk about the fact that Jesus was resurrected from the dead. So when we get to what we're going to see next week is one of these very first epistles ever written. Why in the opening sentences did Paul have to include that he was raised from the dead in talking about the gospel? I want you to think about what you and I know about the resurrection of Jesus. We know at least three things. First, we know that it happened in history. It's an historical event that took place in real time and real space. Secondly, we know that the resurrection of Jesus shows his victory over sin and death. If you don't believe me, you can read in your quiet times this week, 1 Corinthians 15, where it says that the whole purpose of the resurrection was to show victory over sin, victory over death that Jesus showed and that now that those who follow him, they have. And then thirdly, very interesting, we know that the resurrection proves that Jesus was and is who he said he is, namely God's son, the second person of the Trinity. As Romans 1.4 would say about Jesus, it tells us that he was declared to be the son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead. So add all this up. The resurrection of Jesus happened in history, time and space. It shows victory over sin and death. And it proves that he was and is who he said he is, the divine son of God. In other words, the resurrection of Jesus is all about power. Power is seen in and through history when God really raised him. Power in overcoming sin and death. And power in demonstrating that God, that Jesus is who he said he is. So the very power of the gospel, don't miss this church, is seen in Jesus' resurrection. And so I love how C.S. Lewis made this very clear in his famous book entitled Miracles when he posited a very, very bold thesis. He said that if you can accept the resurrection of Jesus, not just as an historical reality, but also as a personal reality in your life, he said then every other issue you have with the gospel falls into place. Every other issue. So think of the person who says, oh, those miracles never happened. I mean, how did Jesus make a lame person walk and a, and, and a deaf guy hear and a blind man see? I mean, come on, that's so fanciful. Well, what Lewis argues is that if you can believe that God raised his son from the dead, then certainly he can make a lame man walk, right? Or how about the atonement? I, Jesus died for our sins. I mean, one man dying for all the sins world. I mean, come on. Well, if God raised him from the dead, then certainly his death on a cross for our sins begins to have some potency and power in our lives. Or even this, how about Jesus' claims on our lives? We all know that, that he claims to be Lord and he wants all of us to submit to his lordship. 
And again, if he was raised from the dead as one who has victory over sin and death, then his call to follow him becomes less a divine request and more a divine imperative. Amen? I mean, that's the power of the resurrection. And so listen to how Tully Intravidian, Billy Graham's grandson, and a man who has followed D. James Kennedy as the senior pastor of Coral Ridge Presbyterian Church says it. This is good stuff. Look up here on the screen. He says, God does not move us beyond the gospel. He moves us more deeply into the gospel. Because all the power we need in order to change and mature comes through the gospel. He says, the gospel does not simply ignite the Christian life. It is the fuel that keeps Christians going and growing every day. Real change, he says, cannot come apart from the gospel. Why? Because the gospel of Jesus is the power of God working in and through our very lives, and it is most seen and experienced in his resurrection. So now, and maybe only now, Philippians 3, verses 10 and 11, a passage that has confused a lot of Christians over the years, might make sense. Look up here on the screen. Paul says that I may know him, referring to Jesus, and the power of his resurrection, that I may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. What's he saying there, folks? He's saying that the resurrection of Jesus is much more than some yearly celebration on the Christian calendar. It's where God's power is most seen and provided for for those who dare embrace Jesus through faith and become followers of him. So I ask you once again, what's your gospel? And once you've identified that, ask yourself, what is its provision and where is its power most found? Because you see, Galatians comes along and it tells you that God's son, Jesus, is your provision and his powerful resurrection is your unshakable power now for life. And as we're going to see as we go along here, you grab onto it through faith each moment of each day. I've been a Christian now for 31 years. I've been alive for 49 and I have personally never found anything that even comes close to a gospel like this that makes sense, that comes from God. And then there's a third and final aspect to God's gospel, and this leads us up to the mountaintop of it all, and that is the purpose of the gospel. Every gospel must have one, and the purpose of God's gospel for you and Jesus, now don't miss this, is to save you, but then also to sanctify you. It's to save and sanctify. Now listen very close, because many people tend to miss this. There are many people today, and tell me if this isn't true, even many Christians, who see the gospel of Jesus Christ as simply something that provides salvation, we use that word all the time, for those who believe. In other words, they believe that the gospel, and rightly so, is something that saves you from a Christless eternity, but then interesting, they stop there. They see the gospel as a salvific entity only designed to give humanity kind of like a spiritual fire insurance policy, an eternal I won't burn policy when we die. That's the way a lot of Christians tend to see the gospel. They see it as something for eternity and to kind of set your eternity for you, but then it stops there. And so they believe that if you just give adherence to the right creed or set of beliefs and then back it up by attending church on Sunday combined with a little bit of heightened morality throughout the week, then you're going to be okay because you've embraced the gospel. And I would submit to you 
that this is a shallow and insufficient understanding of the gospel that involves Jesus and all that he came to bring. Listen, the gospel doesn't just save us, it sanctifies us. Or maybe look at it this way. It doesn't just result in heaven, it readies you for heaven, as well as for life this side of heaven. I want to show you what I mean. This is so clear in the text, and this will set you up for the rest of the year as we look at Galatians. Looking back at this one last time, look at what verses 3 and 4 say again. This is good stuff. It says, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. Two key things you don't want to miss there. First, notice the clarity of verse 4. It tells us the purpose of this gospel, which is to offer Jesus for our sins and to deliver us from the present evil age. So two things going on there simultaneously. But we know that when it says Jesus was given for our sins, well, that's obvious. That is referring to substitutionary atonement, the fact that all humanity is separated from him, and that when Jesus died on a wooden cross, he bore the sins of the world on himself so that for those who embrace him and follow him through faith, they now have their sins forgiven, and the gap between them and God is now bridged. And so the eternal question truly is set. It's referring to salvation there. So clearly the initial part of the gospel of Jesus is to save us from our sins, the sins that separate us from God. The purpose is to forgive us. But isn't it interesting that it doesn't stop there? It goes on to say that this gospel then further delivers us from the present evil age. Now I gotta ask you, what does that mean? You ever thought about that? If you had to explain to somebody this week who doesn't know the Bible, and they asked you, what does it mean, present evil age, how would you explain that? And the answer is actually fascinating, if not life-changing. The word age there is the key. It's the Greek word aeon, and it literally means an era, or, or a long period of time, or the universe, or the world system. In other words, it's a word to describe a particularly lengthy epic of history that one might be living in, an era, but one that's going to last a very, very long time, not just a generation or two. And so in light of the biblical use of this word here in Galatians, when it says the present evil age or era, it's most likely contrasting this to a previous era. So some commentators suggest maybe it's contrasting it to all of the Old Testament before the time of Christ. Well, I think better yet, it's contrasting it to, because it says the evil age, to the time before Adam and Eve, when Adam and Eve sinned. So, so the new era that we're in, the evil age, began at the fall of humankind and will not end until Jesus comes back again to put an end to all the shenanigans. And so either way, what it's saying here is that believers, don't miss this, are living in an evil age, a long period of time when sin and hurt are in this world, and that a huge part of the gospel is now to bring us deliverance in the midst of this evil age, to give us strength, hope, daily resources, grace, goodness, mercy, peace, and victory in the present evil age. And so it sure sounds to me like the gospel of Jesus does a lot more than just save us eternally from our sins. It does something to us every day that is about change and transformation as well. Do you see this? 
And I'm telling you, this is so important for our lives. I like how one popular Bible commentator says it in talking about this passage. He says, Paul's description here is for the totality of human life. That's what he means by era. Or as the famous F.F. Bruce says in his commentary on Galatians, look up on the screen, he says in talking about this exact issue, this denotes the current era of world history and the way of life that characterizes it. I like that little phrase, the way of life. So the gospel directly impacts your way of life, my way of life, as we now live and breathe in a fallen world. It doesn't just save. It also sanctifies. And then if you're still not convinced, more quickly, look at verse 3, when it says very simply, grace to you and peace from God. We've read those words so often as followers of Christ that they've almost become vanilla. Have you noticed that? I mean, Paul begins every letter like this, all 13 of them. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I had a guy in prison a few years back, one of my friends in Michigan, and, and uh, he, he became a Christian and then didn't get out of some trouble he's in, and now he's serving a lengthy prison sentence in, in, in Alpena, Michigan. And he write me letters in the early days, and every letter would begin like this. Dear Jamie, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thought, well, good, he's reading the Bible, because that's right out of it. But, you know, we've heard those words so often. Have you ever asked the question, why does Paul say grace and peace? And what's the difference? Have you ever slowed down to park in front of that and asked that question? The answer is actually profound. What most Bible experts point out is that one of these is talking about the cause, and one of them is talking about the effect. One is about the root, and the other is about the fruit. So the grace being mentioned here is the cause or root of the gospel, while the peace is the effect or fruit of the gospel. And don't miss therein the profound implication that grace and peace go together in the gospel. God's grace brings unmerited, freely given power to your life. The same power that rose Jesus from the dead and now can forgive you eternally of your sins. That's God's grace. But when he says, and peace, we know that this peace is a daily infusing of peace that now gets you through life as you follow God and his gospel. That word peace is the Greek word irene, and it literally means a state of being or wholeness. It's a sense of what's happening internally to you, 24-7, that allows you to walk with God each moment of each day. And so once again, in these opening verses of Galatians, we see that the gospel is not simply designed to save us, though it certainly does that. It's also designed to sanctify us, to set us apart each moment of each day, to walk with God. It's truly a gospel for everyday life. And so let's get down to brass tacks on this one. Let's apply this to our lives. If you're here today, or if you're at Cactus or the venue, and you're one who has embraced the gospel of Jesus by faith, and that's many of us here at Scottsdale Bible, then I'm here to tell you that you have made a bold declaration on the course that your life is taking and is going to take. This is not a once-a-week observance. If you have declared yourself a follower of Jesus, then this now affects everything the Bible says. Your job, your leisure, your money, your relationships, your family, your friends. It affects your entire worldview. It's a gospel for everyday life. It affects how you view culture, economics, history, science, politics. Why? Because you've now declared by simply embracing the gospel of Jesus Christ that that's your ultimate hope. 
that your hope now lies in nothing else. Not in self, not in government, not in education, not in leisure, not in your 401k. It resides in Jesus. And that's exactly what the gospel is designed to do. He's now your savior and your Lord. And he and his word now informs every aspect of your life. And so again, I love how Keller says it. This is so awesome. Look up here on the screen. He says, properly understood, Christianity is by no means the opiate of the people. It's more like the smelling salts. And he's exactly right. Christianity is not designed to put you to sleep. It's designed to wake you up. Why? Because the gospel of Jesus is your only hope. And when you understand that, that gets you out of bed each day. And you realize each day is an opportunity for you to walk with God. And as one of my mentors said to me years ago, to have God sightings all throughout the day. As you submit to him, pray to him, walk with him, ask his help on every aspect of your life, and then look for his movement in and through your life. That's the gospel. And it's that powerful. It affects every moment of every day. And that's what Galatians is going to walk us through. I want to wrap up this morning by sharing with you two stories, one confession, and then one final question. You're going to like this. First story is a true story. It took place in 2009. You can look up here on the screen. Here are the pictures of the two brothers. These are Giza and Zlat Baladi. Pilati, and they have spent most of their life before 2009 living in a cave just outside of Budapest in Hungary. And the reason they had to live in a cave is because their mother abandoned them at a very, very early age, and they didn't have any education or resources, and so they fended for themselves by selling scrap metal and candy on the streets, and then for housing, they lived in a cave. A rather hopeless situation. But in 2009, everything changed. Their mother had already died, and their grandmother, who was living in Germany, died. And when she died, true story, she left an estate worth $7 billion. And according to European law, because there was no surviving child, all the money went to the grandchildren were, who you guessed it, these two brothers and a long-lost sister living here in the States. So these brothers were sought out by some charity workers who had discovered all this and informed them that they had now become the recipients of a $7 billion estate. This was carried by the Associate Press, and I, I, I find this kind of funny, if not sad. Uh, one of the brothers, Giza, said when they found all this out, he said, well, if this works out, it will certainly make up for the life we have had up until now. <laughs> kind of like an understatement. He says, all we have really had was each other. No women would ever look at us living in a cave. He says, but with money, we can now find some women and finally have a normal life. <laughs> we need to pray for his salvation because I don't even want to know where that thing went. Can you imagine going from living in a cave to probably now living in a castle? See, there's something in that for you and I. Um, God says in the gospel, you've been given an amazing inheritance. You really have. Ephesians 1.3 says that we've been blessed in Jesus Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. There's more power available to you every moment of every day to truly find peace, purpose, meaning in life in the gospel of Jesus than you can possibly imagine. And yet, tell me if this isn't true. So many Christians today live their Christian life as they're living in a cave. We've inherited $7 billion and we're still living in a cave. And the reason I know that's true is because I wrestle with this. I'm surrounded by you guys. I'm reminded every moment of every day who I am and that I'm a follower of Jesus. 
And there's many days where I wake up and when I get to the end of the day, I feel beat up, bruised, and rather defeated. I'm the pastor of our church. Paul the Apostle said in 2 Corinthians, in a moment of self-confession, he said, here's my life. I have fears within, conflicts on the outside, and on top of that, my concern for all the churches. That's the pastoral life many times. You're dealing with your own issues and dragons. You got a lot of conflicts on the outside, and then you're concerned about the church. So there's many days where I go through my day and I'm dealing with my own issues and some days are victory, some days are not. And then I, I got conflicts on the outside and then I'm concerned about our capital campaign and our staff and all the issues. And, and I get to the end of the day and I just, I, I, almost my prayer is like, well, God, thank you for getting me through this day. That's a really pathetic prayer, isn't it? <laughs> thank you for getting me through this day. Hardly the victorious life. And all I know is that if I struggle with that, if I struggle with feeling like I'm living in a cave, I know it's something we all struggle with. And the book of Galatians is here to help get us out of the cave. That's how life-changing our look could be over the next, well, for the rest of this year, is that we can finally stop living in a cave and start living in the light of God's truth. One last story. In the 19th century, in the 1800s, there was a very popular atheist, sometimes things never change, by the name of Charles Bradlaugh. He's the guy there on your left there, Charles Bradlaugh. He was the founder of the National Secular Society in England, and during the 1800s, he was one of England's most popular and prominent atheists. And at one point in his life, he challenged any Christian leader, any Christian who knew his stuff, to a national debate on the claims of Christianity. And the guy who responded to this was a very interesting man. His name was Hugh Price Hughes, an active soul winner who was working among the poorest of poor in the streets of London. Hughes was a Welsh Methodist. He was a superintendent of the Methodist, West Methodist London Mission Society. And when Hughes responded nationally to Bradlaugh's claim to a debate, he said, I'll debate you on one condition. It was a brilliant move. He, he said, and I quote, I propose to you that we each bring some concrete evidences of the validity of our beliefs in the form of men and women who have been redeemed from lives of sin and shame by the influence of our teaching." He said, I will bring a hundred such men and women, and I challenge you to do the same. So he said to Bradlaugh, I'll debate you, but you've got to bring a hundred people whose lives have been redeemed by the teachings of atheism, redeemed from a life of sin and shame. And Bradlaugh initially said, well, hey, you know what? Atheism isn't nearly as popular. There's not as many atheists in England, so I can't produce a hundred people like that. So Hughes made it very easy on him. He said, well, okay, why don't we do a one to five ratio? I'll bring 100 people whose lives have been radically changed. All you have to do is bring 20. Bradlaugh said, well, even 20 is going to be hard. <laughs> and so Hughes said, okay, let's just make this the easiest thing in the world. I'll bring 100. All you have to do is bring one. Just bring one person whose lives have been radically changed by your belief of atheism, and we'll have our debate. And as the story is told, it's a true story, Bradlaugh withdrew his challenge. He couldn't find one person whose life had been redeemed from sin and shame by the teachings of atheism. Now, believe it or not, my point in telling you the story is not what you think. My point is for you to take that story with you here today and to ask yourself one question. And it's this, if you were living in England in the 1900s and you were a Methodist and you were a follower of Jesus Christ, would Hughes have picked you to be one of those 100? That's the question you need to wrestle with. If I was challenged to a debate by, say, some 
renegade professor at ASU, I know there aren't any, but say there was some renegade professors at ASU, and they challenged me to a debate uh, when it comes to the gospel, and I pulled this stuff and said, I I'm going to take 100 people from Scottsdale Bible Church whose lives have been radically changed by the teachings of Jesus Christ in an obvious and demonstrated way. Here's what I want you to wrestle with. Would I choose you? Is your life matching up to the gospel? Or is it falling short? There's no shame in this. Let's just be honest as we start this series. And as you ask yourself that question, if you're at all falling short, and my guess is many of us are, then let's get all on board with what's going to happen to us over the next nine months or eight months as a church. People said to me all the time throughout our capital campaign, you know, it's just about buildings and it's just about multi-sites and it's just about church planning and all that. You know, when's the real stuff going to come? Well, in one sense, they're right. All those, in one sense, are outward things. Multi-sites, buildings, church planting, even missions. It's all about outward activities that we do. And the real stuff is the inward stuff. And that's what we're going to spend eight months doing. We're going to allow Galatians to form our souls to the kind of souls that are radically sold out, a gospel for everyday life. I can't wait to see what God does. Why don't you pray with me? Father, I thank you for the evident clarity and challenge that your scriptures give that don't allow us just to rest on our laurels and allow our faith to be a casual thing, but calls our lives to a radical surrender and following of Jesus Christ. Grace and peace, saving from our sins and delivering from the present evil age. And so God, I pray that as we think about all the gospel options out there today, and then we laser beam focus on your gospel, that God will be captured and enamored and engaged with the gospel that you've given us. Lord, may we be that group of 100 that could stand up and say, my life has been changed. It's no longer the same. And Lord, in an increasing way as we go along. So God, I pray that you're working through your word. I pray that today has been a wonderful start and set up to a journey that we're taking as a church that can prepare us for years ahead and change our very lives now. And I pray this in Jesus' holy and precious name. And we all say together, amen. amen. God bless you and have a great day.